Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight, and we're in Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, and we'll read the uh, chapter, but we went through the first three verses last week, and so we'll pick up in our uh, exposition in verse 4 tonight. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. There it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amiti, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Then the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship, lay down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that, Lord, you might teach and instruct us tonight. Lord, that you would um, keep us from being... Uh, those who seek to flee from your presence, Lord, who uh, flee from your will, but rather, Lord, may we be those who are diligent to seek out your will in your word and then devote our lives to seeking to practice it, Lord, and to do those things that are pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you that um, in your mercy, Lord, you do pursue your people. Lord, even in... uh, our disobedience and in our rebellion against you. Lord, you do not leave us in such a state, but Lord, whatever is necessary to bring us out of our sin, Lord, you will exercise your discipline, Lord, your chastisements as our Heavenly Father to do so. And certainly, Lord, we see this in the life of Jonah, and we pray that you might exercise such goodness toward us as well. Lord, that you might train us in righteousness, and Lord, teach us to do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Father, help us tonight and sanctify us, Lord, in your truth, knowing that your word is truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
All right, well, we began this book last week where we have this account of, uh, of Jonah and his interactions with the Lord, with the sailors, with the people of Nineveh, uh, with a plant, uh, and all the things that happen in relationship to these things. And we remember that uh, the book of Jonah is unique in terms of prophetic books because it contains very little oracle. There isn't a lot of declaration or uh, thus says the Lord and then pronouncements of judgments uh, and blessings and curses upon the people. Uh, but really it is an account and the life of the prophet and everything that happens to him, this is the primary instruction that God has given to the people so that Jonah is himself an object lesson and through observing what happens to him and what God is teaching him, then we ourselves are instructed and we learn as well. And so this is the nature of the book and the way it proceeds to deliver its prophecy that is from the Lord. We remember that in the beginning, uh, the word of God came to Jonah and the Lord called Jonah to go to the great city Nineveh and to pronounce judgment against them because their wickedness had come up against the Lord. This was God's call to him. And in that way, again, Jonah was seen as unique because he was sent to prophesy to a foreign people, right? To a Gentile nation, whereas most of the prophets were sent to the people of Israel to preach against them and to proclaim their wickedness and call them to repent. Jonah was sent to a foreign nation, to a foreign city, to these great enemies of God and of God's people to cry out against them because of their wickedness. But Jonah uh, was unwilling to do so. He did not want to be a part of this, so he fled from the presence of the Lord. And instead of going uh, to Nineveh, as God told him to do, he went to Joppa, or he went uh, down to Joppa and boarded a ship to go to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction, right? Fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now he's on this ship and they are on their way to Tarshish. And then the rest of the chapter is the account of what takes place. Uh, while he's on the ship, this storm that comes about, everything that happens with the sailors, uh, and then ultimately Jonah being tossed overboard. So let's pick up in verse 4, <clears throat> and we'll go from there. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4 says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Here we see that behind all of these events that take place, it is the Lord who is doing this, right? It is very clear that the Lord is the one who hurled this great wind upon the sea. The Lord is the one who caused this great storm to come. And this was not a common storm. Certainly these men, being sailors, were accustomed to being at sea and accustomed to dealing with storms in the sea. But they even recognize as this goes on that this is something peculiar. It is unusual. It is unique, right? That this has to be some judgment or this has to be something that has happened on account of someone who is here with us. So this is a very severe and a very strong storm. And it reminds us and shows us that he is Lord of all things, right? God is the creator of the earth. He is Lord of land, He is Lord of the sea, He is Lord of the animals, He is Lord of men, He is Lord of the sun, the moon, and the stars. He is the one who has created all these things, and He is the ruler all over all of these things. And certainly God has put certain laws and order into the creation, but God can do whatever He pleases. And if He wants to send a storm and a wind 
to whip up the sea into a rage, to foment and to bring his judgments, then God can do those things, right? He is the one that controls all such things. So when we see these things in the world, we should not see them merely as natural occurrences. This is what is typical. People apply it to nature or to Mother Earth or even to fate and these types of things. But biblically, right, with a biblical worldview and an understanding of who the God of the Bible is, we must ultimately see that all of these things, whether it's a tornado, a hurricane, a storm, ultimately all of it comes from the Lord. It is the work of His hands. Psalm 107, <clears throat> Psalm 107 and verse 23. 107.23. There it says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol Him also in the congregation of the people and praise Him at the seat of the elders." Whether it is the stormy sea or whether it is the calm sea, all of it ultimately comes from the Lord. He is the one who rules over these things, and no man is able to control such things. Men do not have the ability to hurl a great wind upon the sea. Men do not have the ability to churn the sea up into such a way as the Lord God does. Nor do they have the ability to calm it or to stop a wind or to stop a storm. But who does have this ability? The Lord God does, right? God does because He is powerful and He is the ruler over all things. So this great storm comes upon uh, the, the, the sailors in the ship, so great that the ship was about to be broken up. The result of this is that the sailors are afraid, right? They are terrified because they fear that they're going to lose their life. And again, these are not uh, sissy men. These are not men who are unaccustomed to the sea. These are men who have spent their life doing such things. And those who uh, have <clears throat> done this their life, their livelihood comes from this, they are accustomed to being out into the sea of the dangers of those types of things. And in a typical storm, a typical situation, it wouldn't be a problem for them. But they see and recognize that this is a severe storm and they know that their lives are in great danger. They are very terrified of the situation and what is coming about. The result is that they begin to take action. They throw the cargo overboard, which if we know men and uh, the nature of men, they are no different than people in our own day. <clears throat> and men love money. They love possessions. And as sailors taking cargo from one point to another, this is their livelihood. This is where they make their money. So for them to be so desperate that they would be willing to part with their cargo, 
This is a last ditch effort, right? The last option would be to throw the cargo overboard and yet so desperate are they to, uh, to survive this storm, right? This is how uh, horrible the situation is for them that they're even willing to cast their cargo overboard in, even, in order to save the ship and in order to save their lives. So they are doing such things, throwing over their cargo and then they begin to cry out to their gods. Each man crying out to his God, asking for his God to deliver him. And these men would have uh, no doubt been polytheistic in their theology and their understanding, right? Many people, uh, even in the present day, but certainly in the ancient day as well, they believed in and they worshiped and served and they cried out to many various gods. There were national deities, there were family deities, there were individual deities that people had some affinity or affection to, and they would cry out to these things. They would offer sacrifices, they would pray to them, they would seek their blessing, right? Whatever they could do to get the gods into their favor so that they would bring blessings upon them. And here, when they're in a desperate situation, they do what is natural to men. They elicit the help of a higher authority, a higher power, and they're crying out to their gods to bring them some, some help, some deliverance in their time of need. And it shows us just the futility of those who worship false gods because they're crying out to gods, but what is the problem in this equation? The gods don't exist, right? All of these gods are false gods. So how can a false god help deliver you from a storm at sea? When he doesn't exist, he's not real. He's a figment of your own imagination. These gods are powerless to help, to save, to deliver these people. And yet this is the state of mankind. Those who forsake the true and living God, they cut off their hope of any salvation and of any deliverance, whether that be deliverance from some temporal danger like a storm at sea, or the ultimate deliverance, which is the wrath to come in the day of judgment, there is no hope, there is no help in false gods, in false religions, because those things are not real. They do not exist, and they have no power. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have hands, but they're not able to do anything, right? And those who cry out to them will be sorely disappointed on the day of judgment. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And it shows you how blessed we are in the state in which we find ourselves, seeing that we have come to know the true and living God, who not only can hurl a great wind on the sea, but who also can hear the prayers of His people and deliver us in our time of need. Ephesians 2 verse 12, He says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a fitting description of the sailors in Jonah chapter 1. They have no hope and they are without God in the world. And this is because they are crying out to false gods. And those false gods can give them no help during their time of need. They cannot bring any deliverance any salvation, any safety, any help to them. Also, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. four thirteen. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, 
so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. The rest, this is the pagan, the unbelieving world, the world of false gods, those who worship their false gods and their false religions, they have no hope concerning their loved ones who have died and who have gone into the life to come. Because their gods cannot deliver them from death. Their gods cannot help them and safely deliver them into the heavenly kingdom because their gods are not real. They're false gods who have no power. They have no strength. And it shows you the sadness, the plight, the futility of man in his natural state, cut off from God. To be in such a desperate situation, to be crying out to your gods for deliverance, but for there to never be any answer. The gods never answer them. They never come and they bring no help and they bring no aid to those who worship and who follow them because these are false gods. They cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot deliver in the day of, dr of trouble, neither from the storm at sea and how much more from the storm of God's wrath that is coming in the life to come. They cannot deliver from sin and death. Now, in contrast to that, there is the true God. And the true God, our God, the Lord God, He can hear our prayers. He does have eyes to see. He does have ears to hear. And He does have a strong, mighty right arm by which He can deliver His people from all of their troubles, from every hardship and every trouble. God can come to our aid. And not only can He come to our aid, He encourages us to come to Him with our prayers to cast all of our cares upon Him because He cares for us. And how have we come to this state, and we're not like these sailors, adrift at sea, without God, without hope? Is it because of any goodness in us? Is it because we are more spiritual than they? We are wiser than they? We are, are better than they were? It is all because of the grace of God. It is God's grace freely given to us in Jesus Christ that has brought us to this blessed state Whereas so many others in the world today remain in a state of futility, they are without God, and they are without hope in the world. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Sixteen. Hebrews 4, 16. says, Therefore... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here, the believer, one of the privileges, the rights that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ is that we can draw near with confidence to God's throne of grace. The throne of God has become for believers through Jesus Christ. It has become for us a throne of grace by which God gives grace to His people. And He tells us to come near to it, to cry out to God, receive mercy, find grace to help us in our time of need. Whether that need be some temporal deliverance, like a storm at sea, or whether that need be some spiritual deliverance, like from sin and the consequences of sin, God can help us in all of our troubles. Also, Luke 12 6 to 7. Luke 12, 6 to 7. There it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. 
Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. If God sees the sparrows, and if God cares for the sparrows, then can God see a ship in the middle of the sea, stuck in a storm? Can He see the sailors and the people that are on that ship in the midst of the sea? Even on the darkest night, even in the raging tempest, God can see those things, and can God come to their aid? Absolutely He can. So, no matter what we face in life, God always sees and God is always able to help. Now, it doesn't mean that God will give us immediate deliverance because God does test and try His people. He exercises our faith so that we have to depend upon Him. We have to rely upon Him. And even if He doesn't deliver us from those things, it doesn't mean that He has forgotten us or that He doesn't care for us. It just means that He's going to exercise us in a different way. And we must submit our lives to the providence of God, to His will. But we can know for certain that no matter what the situation is, God sees us, God cares for us, and He is there to help us in our time of need. And even if that doesn't mean the removal of whatever affliction is upon us, He will give to us the grace and mercy we need to endure it and bring glory and honor to Him. And God will be with us in all these situations. Okay, back to Jonah chapter 1. Verses, uh, we'll pick back up in verse 5. Here, the contrast, the sailors, they're frantically throwing stuff overboard. They're crying out to their gods. They're looking for help. And then we have Jonah, 5b. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship, laid down and fallen sound asleep. In contrast, Jonah is unaware of what's going on. Somehow he's able to sleep. Uh, in the midst of this great storm, right? So whatever is upon him, whether this is from the Lord or he was just really exhausted and tired, he's a heavy sleeper. You know, I slept through the uh, 1999 tornado that came through Norman, Oklahoma, uh, and I never even woke up. So there are some people who are able to sleep through anything. Perhaps Jonah is such a man. And in contrast to the sailors who are frantically working to save their lives, to save the lives of the other men, here Jonah is sound asleep and not even thinking about everything that is going on, which shows us again how, at this point, how dull he is to the will of God and to what he's doing, right? He is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and yet his conscience seems not to be bothered by these things. Typically, when someone's conscience is very bothered, it's difficult for them to sleep. Yet Jonah is here sound asleep there in the hold of the ship. Verse 6, So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Here, the captain finds Jonah asleep and he is confounded, right? How is it that you are sleeping? Here, they are all striving with all their might and he is fast asleep. How could one possibly sleep in a storm like this? So he calls for Jonah to get up, call out to your God. Maybe he'll listen to us and he'll deliver us, which again shows you just the futility. There's no confidence in these men that their gods are able to do anything. It's just like a shot in the dark, right? Like a rolling of the dice. You call out to your God, I'll call out to my God. Maybe one of our gods will hear us. Maybe one of them is paying attention and will come and help us and deliver us in our time of need. That is a far cry from what we experience as Christians, as believers, and the boldness and the confidence 
right? That's what we have. We have confidence to go to the throne of grace. We're not sitting here going as the children of God. Well, we're going to pray to God and we hope that he hears us. Maybe he'll help us. Maybe he'll give us grace and mercy. That isn't the case at all. We know that God will help us. We know that God will hear us and give us grace and mercy in our time of need because he has promised to do so. And we have assurances given to us from his word. Yet here, they are crying out, perhaps he will hear us, perhaps he won't, but it can't hurt to try. We're all trying, but you're doing nothing. You cry out to your God, maybe he will come and maybe he will help us so that we do not perish. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. The crew at this point is convinced that this storm must be an act of judgment. This is an act of judgment, of vengeance, right? And even though their knowledge of the true God is, is lacking, Right, because they have not come to experience and know who he is yet. But still, these uh, false worshipers, uh, pagans, idolaters, they still had a sense that there were gods and the gods could be very vengeful and that they would do things to people if they were displeased with them. And they have become convinced, right? though again, they're doing this in ignorance. They don't realize that what they're actually saying there is some truth to it, an element of truth, though it is unknown to them, but it will be revealed to them in due time. They want to discover and find out whose fault is this, right? This has come about because someone has done something to offend the gods, and this calamity has come upon us because of this. No one thinks that they're the one at fault, so let's cast lots to determine who is at fault and see why it is that this has come about. Now, again, they're doing this all superstitiously. They're doing it in ignorance. Though behind all of this, there is the unseen will of God. God is the one moving and acting upon them to bring these things about unbeknownst to them at this time. So they are going to call out to their gods. And again, it does show that there is some sense, even from natural law, right? When Gentiles who do not have the law by Nature do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves, though they do not have the law. They understand that when these kinds of things are happening, that there is judgment, there is retribution that comes upon people because of their deeds. Right? This is similar to Acts 28.4, when the Apostle Paul was on the ship, and the ship was shipwrecked on the island, and then they were gathering wood to make a fire and a viper came out and bit him on the hand. There the natives said he escaped the storm, but the snake got him, right? This man must be a murderer, right? Because it's obvious the gods are after him to kill him. They tried to do it with a storm and were unsuccessful. Now they got him with the viper. He must be a wicked man, a murderer, because justice has finally come upon him. So there is some semblance of truth, but it's mixed with ignorance and it's mixed with futility in those kinds of things. Here, their prescribed method of determining who is at fault is the casting of lots, which would be similar to, uh, you know, the rolling of a dice, uh, drawing of straws, some way that we go into something blindly and we leave it up to fate or to chance to determine who is at fault, right? To point the finger to us so that we know who to uh, interrogate and who to look to as the source of this uh, calamity. And Again, though using these types of things um, 
as they are doing it, is superstitious. But ultimately, it is the Lord who is controlling these things. And even in Proverbs 16.33, it tells us that the decision is from the Lord. And in that sense, we have to understand that there is no chance, there is no fate. Right? These are uh, unbiblical concepts, the way that people use them today, as if things are blindly happening. Now, from the perspective of man... It may seem like chance. It may seem like randomness to us. But what we have to understand in terms of what the Bible teaches about God is that every single event that happens in the world today is meticulously being controlled by God. His sovereignty is a meticulous divine sovereignty that controls every single aspect of what happens in the world today. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Ultimately, God is the one who determines these things, and He is the one who guides the lot so that when these sailors cast lots even superstitiously, God is the one who directs it so that the lot falls on Jonah. And then they begin to interrogate Him, and God is using these things uh, to reveal what is going on. Okay, Verse 8, Then they said to Him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Here, Jonah, they begin to interrogate him in order to get answers to their questions. Right? They understand that Jonah is the key to unlocking this calamity, this mystery that they've all been wrapped up in and they don't know what's going on. But this man, this stranger, he is the key to understanding and coming to some knowledge of what is happening to us. And so they want to know, who are you? Right? Who are you? Where did you come from? What is your people? What is your occupation? From what country are you? Right? Why is all of this happening to us? We want to understand what is going on. And the lot fell on you. So you give us answers and you help us understand everything that is taking place. Verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Here he reveals to them that he is a Hebrew and he is of uh, the Lord God, right? The God of His people, the God of the Hebrew people, is the only true and living God. He is the supreme God who is over all other gods. He calls Him here the God of heaven. He's not a God of earth. He did not originate on earth, but He is the God who dwells in heaven, and heaven is above the earth, right? In relationship, heaven is above and the earth is below. And if God is the God of heaven, then what does that mean about His relationship to the earth? He's the God of the earth as well. And He's the God who made the sea and dry land. The whole earth belongs to Him. He is its creator. And as its creator, He is also the ruler of these things. And this tempest, this storm that has come upon the sea, has come to us from the hand of God. So this is the God that Jonah worships. Their gods cannot save them because their gods are false gods. And then secondly, the supreme God, who is the ruler of the land and sea, he's the one that is sending the wind. So even if their gods were real, they still couldn't overpower his God because his God is the supreme God. So there is nothing that they can do to deliver themselves from the hand of God, who to overpower God 
if God doesn't choose to be merciful to them. Only appealing to God can overturn their present calamity. This is the situation that they are in, and this is a situation that all men are in. There is no deliverance from God outside of God. He is the only one who can deliver us from the wrath to come. Those who look to false gods will not be delivered. Those who look to their own goodness, their own righteousness, their own works, they will not be delivered. Those who look to mankind, who trust in men, will not be delivered. Only God can deliver us from the wrath of God. This is where we must look for our salvation. We cannot get it anywhere else because there's only one true and living God. We must appeal to Him. And if He is against us, who can deliver us from His hand? It is impossible for such things to come about. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. First Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. It says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. There are many so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth. The pantheons of the nations contain many so-called gods, some that exist and dwell on the earth, some that exist and dwell in heaven, in their mythologies, in their stories about these gods. But these are so-called gods because they're not real. They're just the figment of the imagination, the wicked imagination of men. But for us, there is only one God. He is the true God. He is the Father from whom are all things and we exist for Him. And there is only one Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He is the only mediator by which we can be delivered from the wrath to come. So this is the true and living God. This is the God that Jonah knows and that Jonah worships and Jonah serves Him. Verse 10. Says, then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, up to this point in the narrative, we, you know, the reader, the one from our perspective, we know why everything is happening, right? We know why the storm has come to the sea. We know what is happening with Jonah. We have the background to everything that's going on. The sailors, up to this point, are completely in the dark. They have no idea who he is. They have no idea why this storm has come about. They don't know his God. They don't know any of these things. Now they have the knowledge. Now he has told them, this is what's going on. This is who I am. And this is why all of this is happening to you. Now they are in the light instead of in the dark anymore. The storm has been sent by God. It is an act of divine judgment. Right, That the God they're dealing with is not some petty deity. He is the Lord of heaven who made the sea and the land, and He rules over them as He wills. They also now know that it's Jonah's fault. Jonah is the one fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He told them that he's a prophet and that he is fleeing from the presence of God. 
This is why all of this has come about, because of his disobedience. And it is his disobedience and his sin that has brought these sailors unwittingly into the middle of everything that is going on. That they are, in a sense, innocent victims. They're just going about their normal business, taking on people. The only thing they're guilty of is not doing a background check, right? If they would have done that, maybe it would have been revealed and they'd have been like, no, you stay off the ship. But that's the only thing that you could hold them at fault for, right? All they're doing is their normal course of business, going from Joppa to Tarshish, delivering their cargo, which also would include fare for people who wanted to go to Tarshish. And this man is willing to pay. He's on the ship. We're taking him. But he didn't inform them that he worships and serves the true God, that he's a prophet of God, and that he is in willful disobedience to his will, and that his God has the power to send a storm and overturn the sea and to kill all of them if he pleases. But now they know. But it's too late because they're in the middle of the sea, in a boat, in a ship, and there is this great storm that is raging all around them. So they think, now we're going to die. We're going to die because of this man. And in their terror, they say, how could you do this, right? How could you do this? Not only could you do this to your God, how could you do this to us, right? Bring all of this upon us when we have done you no wrong. And it is a good reminder for us to always remember <clears throat> that our sins are not isolated to us. Sin has many consequences, and it impacts and affects many other people as well. To think that we can sin in isolation, and that our sins will not impact our family, our wives, our children, our church family, even strangers. Here, these are complete strangers to Jonah. So his sin is having a grave impact upon them because they're convinced at this point that they're about to die, and though ultimately God will deliver them, they at least went through a great amount of stress in the middle of this storm. They would be exhausted, uh, you know, not only physically from what they're having to do, but emotionally. All that has come about upon them, all because of Jonah's sin. Not their sin, though again, they are guilty people and they themselves are sinners. But in terms of what is happening in the immediate context, it is a result of Jonah's sin that they are experiencing this great calamity. And again, it is a reminder that sin does have consequences, not only for us, but for others as well. And we don't want to be the source of calamity upon our family, upon our church, right? Upon uh, strangers or, or anyone else. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't want our neighbor doing something that's going to impact us. So why would we do the same, right? We were reminded that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven does not stay isolated within the lump, but it spreads throughout the lump. And so it is with sin, whether that's in the home or whether that's in the church or whether that's in an individual's life. It will spread and have its impact and destroy whatever it comes into contact with. Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. A root of bitterness that springs up in one person will ultimately lead to defilement 
for many others as well. Because that root of bitterness will be a source that instigates many temptations and many sins in other people as well. And as that root begins to spread, then it's going to defile many, many people. It's not isolated to the one individual, but it impacts many others as well. Jonah chapter 1, verse 11. So they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Here, Jonah is at fault, but Jonah is the one also who knows who the true Lord of heaven is, who made the sea and dry land, right? He is one of his prophets. So though he is at fault, you still see in these sailors a bit of humility, right? In that, they're asking him, well, what should we do, right? They're not seeking their own mind, their own wisdom. They're not even calling out to their own gods now. They're consulting Jonah. You're the one that knows this God. You're the one that is disobedient. So what should we do? in order to cause this storm to cease so that the sea will become calm and we don't all lose our our life? How can His wrath be abated so that we don't die out in the middle of the sea? Which is a good question to ask, right? If you're in such a situation. Then verse 12, He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Jonah knows and understands that until there is judgment, until there is retribution on him because of what he's done, the sea is not going to stop. The only way for the sailors to be saved, for them to be preserved, is to take him and throw him overboard into the sea. And at that point, the sea will become calm. His life must be sacrificed, must be thrown overboard in order to save the lives of the sailors. Now, At this point, Jonah doesn't know what God has in plan. He doesn't know that God is going to preserve his life. At this point, Jonah is willing to lay down his life for the sake of these sailors, to be thrown overboard, to go to his own death in order for them to be delivered and to be saved, in order to satisfy the judgment of God. Verse 13, However, the men rode desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier, against them. The sailors don't like this option of throwing God's prophet overboard, which is typically not a good idea. And so they want to try with all of their might to get back to the land so that they don't have to participate in the death of this prophet. So they try with all of their might, yet it is to no avail. The harder they row, the stormier the sea becomes. The storm is actually intensifying. It is getting worse and worse the more they strive against it. Which is a reminder to us of the futility of men seeking to oppose the will of God, right? It will never happen. And also it is a good picture of the futility of men seeking to justify themselves by their own works. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And when a man attempts to justify himself by his own righteousness, by his own works. It is a very similar situation. The harder he works, the stormier the wrath of God is against him. Because no matter how hard he works, he's never going to be able to become righteous in the sight of God. But the harder he works, what does he actually do? The more he manifests his own wickedness, his own depravity, his own sinfulness against God, the greater the judgment of God actually increases upon him. 
And this is the way it is for all who rely upon human effort, right, in order to deliver themselves or to overcome these things. Verse 14. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Here the sailors finally concede that throwing Jonah overboard is all that they can do. Right? This is the only thing they can do to save their lives, for them to be saved and preserved. However, notice that before they do so, what do they do? They pray. They cry out to God and they ask God, please do not hold His life against us. Do not hold us guilty of shedding innocent blood, right? Because we're going to be the ones who throw this man overboard, but we're not doing it because we're murderous. We're not doing it because we want him to die. You know, Lord, that we have tried to save him. We have tried to preserve his life. We've done everything we could to try to get back to land so that he would not die. And yet we are submitting ourselves to your will. And this is why we are doing these things. But please do not charge his blood against us. Do not hold us guilty for the loss of his life. Right? They don't want to do it, but they are having to do it. And also Jonah is willingly laying down his life. They're not forcing him to do something contrary to his will, but he has already agreed to do such, such things. And there is no other option. And they are keeping in the will of God. Now, this is a contrast, I think, in two regards. <clears throat> First, the sailors in contrast to Jonah. Because the sailors, they don't know Jonah, right? He is a complete stranger to them. They're not of his people. He has, they have no prior relationship to, to him. Yet they're very concerned about his life. And they don't want him to die. They're not hard, calloused men who are just like, okay, well, if we have to throw him overboard, just throw him overboard. We don't care. They're, that's not the attitude that they have. They're very concerned about his life and they have a type of humanity in that they're seeking to preserve him as much as they can. And it's only as a last resort that they cast him overboard. That in contrast to Jonah's attitude when he goes to Nineveh in chapter 4. Chapter 4 verses 1 to 4, Jonah shows no regard. He seems and appears to be very hard-hearted and to have no humanity toward the men of Nineveh, but only desires their destruction and their judgment. When these sailors, who are pagans and idolaters, who have never even heard of the Lord God until this day, yet they show more compassion and more humanity than the prophet of God, who should know better than such things. Jonah 4, 1-4. It greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry, angry that God was merciful to the men of Nineveh. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning, concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? There, Jonah is no sympathy, no compassion, no mercy, no desire for salvation for the men of Nineveh. Just justice, just destruction, just judgment. Yet the sailors, who are idolaters, show more mercy and compassion toward Jonah 
than he's willing to extend toward the men of Nineveh. Then also, another contrast. That would be between the sailors and the men of Jesus' day. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 25. 27, 25. Actually, 24 and 25. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. Jonah, though he was guilty of sin and of bringing this calamity upon the sailors, yet the sailors don't want his blood charged against them. In contrast, the men of Jesus' day, though Jesus was not guilty, he had committed no sin, there was no deceit in his mouth, there was no violence in him, he did nothing that was deserving of death, and yet they are willing for his blood to be counted against them. Let it come upon us and let it come upon our children. And these are God's people who have access to God's Word and yet so ignorant to the things of God. So again, it is a sad contrast to see their behavior with that of the sailors. Then verse 15 says, So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The men agree, and having offered this prayer to God, they throw Jonah overboard, and immediately the sea stops its raging. Then, before it turns to to Jonah, and what happens to him afterwards, uh, one last bit concerning these sailors, is that the men feared the Lord greatly. Before, they feared the storm greatly, Now the storm has stopped. Everything is smooth and calm. There's no immediate danger and threat upon their lives from this storm. Yet here they have another kind of fear, a better fear, and that is the fear of the Lord. They fear the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to God. So they worship the true God. They offer Him a sacrifice, and they make vows to Him. Vows uh, to worship Him, to serve Him, to be faithful to Him, uh, these kinds of, of things. And so here there is a change that happens in the lives of these sailors from this encounter with Jonah. And again, this is what we mentioned last week in terms of Jonah being the best worst prophet uh, in the Bible. Uh, the best in that everyone he comes into contact with repents Uh, turns to the Lord, but the worst in that it all is in spite of Jonah, right, in his efforts. He's just moving along and God is using him uh, in these great ways. Now, a couple of things for us to consider uh, before we close tonight. One, we must be reminded in this that God's will can never be thwarted. God's will will be supreme. Jonah is going to go to Nineveh and he's going to preach to the Ninevites one way or the other, right? It's going to happen either the easy way or it's going to happen the hard way. He chose the hard way, but what is eventually going to happen? He's going to Nineveh and he's going to preach against the city and he's going to do what God told him to do. 
So it can happen one way or it can happen the other, but he will not subvert the will of God, right? And this is what we must do, right? Wisdom is seen in us when we seek to know the will of God. And what has God given to us so that we might know his will? He has given to us his word, just as he did to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God revealed his will to Jonah, and yet Jonah sought to thwart, to run away from, to overturn that will, and yet he could not do so. So for us, the wise practice is to seek the will of God that is found in the word of God, and then do whatever we can to conform our life to the will of God. Jonah's fault, or his failure, was not ignorance of the will of God. He knew the will of God. It was clearly revealed to him. His failure was moral. It was a lack of conformity, a lack of desire to conform his life to the will of God. And oftentimes, that is our problem as well. We know the right thing to do, and yet we fail to do it. We know what God's will is, and yet we do not do it. It is a moral failure, and we must pray that God would overcome that, that God would strengthen us and cause us to walk in His ways. Secondly, another point is Jonah's contradiction, right? Jonah's contradiction. In verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And yet he's saying that in the midst of what? Verse 3, where it says that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. So he knows the true God, and what he's saying intellectually is true conceptually about God. This is the true God. He does fear Him in a sense. He is the creator of all things. He is the heaven, uh, the Lord of heaven and earth. He did make the sea and the land. But his actions are contradicting what he knows to be true about God. So there is this contradiction that is in Jonah. Jonah the prophet knows the true God, runs from Him. He's disobedient to Him. He prefers death to having any part of Nineveh's deliverance. In contrast to Jonah are the sailors who have never heard of the Lord God, yet immediately upon understanding who He is, will comply to His will, are offering prayers to Him, offering sacrifices, making vows to God, right? Unwilling to throw Jonah overboard. So we need to make sure that our lives are consistent, right? Living a consistent Christian life so that our actions align with our theology, with our belief, right? This is, again, a common problem. Okay, another point we ought to consider is God's mercy to Jonah seen in his judgments, right? God's mercy seen in judgment. We have to consider in this whole scenario, what is the worst thing that can happen to Jonah? Right? What is the worst outcome, the worst possible outcome for Jonah? Is it the storm at sea? Right? Is it the sinking of the ship? Is it being thrown overboard? Right? Is it his drowning? Right? None of these things, though all of those are terrible outcomes, none of those things are the worst thing that could happen to Jonah. The worst thing that could happen to him is smooth sailing, a safe, easy trip to Tarshish, and then living out the rest of his days in peace and comfort, having a life of ease and luxury, but living outside of the will of God. 
That is the worst thing. Living in a state of perpetual disobedience, in a state of sin against God outside of His will. So if it takes God sending a storm to the sea and having Jonah thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish and then puked back out, if that's what it takes to shaken him out of his stupor and to get him out of his sin, then that is the best thing that God could do for him. And God's mercy is seen in this judgment he brings upon Jonah. And God will exercise all of his children in the same way. He chastises those that He loves. And if we are in a stupor, if we are in a state of sin, and God requires to bring us out of that by afflicting us with some calamity, then that is a goodness from God to sanctify us, to purify us of all unrighteousness. And sadly, just as it is with our children, oftentimes our foolishness must be driven out with the rod of discipline. And God knows how to drive out the foolishness that maintains within us because of the flesh. God uses discipline in order to drive that from us. And that is a goodness and kindness of God. Because His chief concern with His children is not our peace and our comfort and our prosperity in this life. It is our holiness, our righteousness, that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. Then one last thing, and that is a comparison between Jonah and Jesus, right? Jonah and Jesus. Both Jonah and Jesus are asleep, right, in a boat when there is a great storm that is taking place in the sea. Jonah is asleep because he is dead to the will of God. Jesus is asleep because he is in perfect harmony with the will of God, and there could not be a contrast that is greater. In both cases, Jonah is thrown overboard in order to preserve the life of the sailors. But he is thrown overboard because he is the one who is in disobedience, who is running and fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jesus is an innocent man. Jesus is the spotless, pure Lamb of God. And yet, in a sense, he is thrown overboard. He is thrown into the sea of the wrath of God. Not because of anything that he had done, but because of whose sin? But for our sin, right? We deserve to be the one cast into the sea of God's wrath. And yet, Jesus is cast into it on our behalf in order to deliver us, in order to preserve us. He's sacrificing His righteous life, His innocent, pure life for our guilty lives. And this is where our redemption and our salvation is found. So, we should put our hope there and be grateful for all that Christ has done for us.